Um, kind of a segue in what we do and our goals. We, uh, we want to be a blessing during this time to our community. And um, in my gratitude, I, I want to say thank you to all of you who are servants in this house and staff that came out this morning to create a sacrifice of worship, Hebrews thirteen fifteen, so that the congregation can benefit in the safety of their homes. Thank you so much for your sacrifice and your effort. I also want to say thank you to those of you who are fighting for the welfare of our community. Um, you care so much, and the issues regarding whether a people like us should meet in a large setting on a regular basis, you care so much about the community that you were working hard to make sure that they were safe. And even if it meant you were advocating for them rather than for how we do what we do, your love was shared like that. Thank you for loving the community. Thank you. And for those of you who were really fighting for the benefit that the church can give in large settings and saying, no, we need to meet. It's important for us to meet because there's infinitely more good that we can share than bad and that the miraculous power of healing the sense of the presence of God that we communicate, the equipping that happens, the dependence on the supernatural, not just the natural, all those things go into making up why we fight for our gatherings and how important they are. Thank you for fighting. And yet all of us are trying to be on the same page of making our community better. I love every one of you. Every one of you. You mean a lot. Turn with me over to the book. Of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The title of the message today is Warring Well. Warring Well. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. The writer is Paul, and he says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when, when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Verse 6. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Lord, help us as we study. Before we entered into this moment of unusual structure in order to continue the uh, mission of the church, uh, this was going to be my topic, and I decided to not change it simply because society's environment has changed. There's something about the mission of the church that ought to go on. Having said that, I'm going to intersperse some things that deeply relate to where we are. Paul was working as best he could with the church at Corinth to help them understand 
what it meant to receive instruction well and how that instruction was to be given. Here's a man who had more authority than anybody on the planet. The authority that God had given him was beyond that which any potentate had in the Roman Empire, in the Jewish Empire. The authority that God gave him was extraordinary. He was able to architect churches. He was able to tell churches to stop doing what they're doing. Remember, the church is the most influential institution in the universe. I say that without qualification. There is no more influential institution in the universe than the church. Why? Because it's God's priority in terms of creating effective change in the earth. Now, you may say, are you kidding me? And that is because the church many times is just a social gathering on a Sunday morning. It's a feel-good moment for people to get together. And since I have now moved to a better understanding of my social identity, I now am self-actualized. I feel better than when I walked out. The church is not just a self-help moment. The church is an equipping time. The church is a people that are to be an agent of help and healing to the world. And it is God's answer to every problem that exists. Every problem that exists. And Paul was the primary leader of that, of that church. Now there were others. It was Peter, it was James, John, all the apostles that were in, in Jerusalem. But none more influential than this man. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He started most of the churches that we know that were started in the first century. And those churches were not small churches. They, 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 some of them were 20,000. We believe the church at Ephesus was 20,000 people before Paul passed. A major influencer in how Ephesus did what it did. And so this man had more authority than anybody else. Peter, James, I'll say it this way. There was nobody who had more authority than him. And yet he says, when I come to you, I come to you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I'm not coming showing my stripes. I'm not coming trying to prove how strong I am. Not, not giving you the stats of how many churches I planted, how many people have supported me, the impact and influence I get from people who think I'm somebody. He didn't have a long bio detailing all of his accomplishments. In fact, he said this. Everything I've done that's good and great, I put on the rubbish heap of life in order that I might gain him. Yeah. I want to be recognized and affirmed by him rather than what I've done. Yeah. And he had the privilege of being somebody who could be acclaimed by all of his accomplishments more than anybody else. And yet he says, I hide myself in who Jesus is, not in what I've done. I concentrate on this point. Because if you want to be a good warrior, a battler in spiritual realms, it has nothing to do with how many PhDs you've got, how much money you've got, how good looking you are, how glib you are. Not how well you can form your sentences and frame your arguments. In fact, Paul to the same church says, you know, I'm really not very eloquent. I get it. He doesn't speak with this sense that just captivates you. It seems that Paul's public presentation was a little... (laughs) I know you never do that with me. Oh, he could write, though. He could write. 
And he said, listen, when I'm with you, I'm not like I am when I'm not. You see my letters and <laughs> boom. <laughs> and he's even very kind in the way he communicates through letter. It's, it's building up to something before he lowers a boom on them for what they need to do and change. But when he's with them, they're sitting there saying, boy, he's really different when he's with us and when he's not. I, I can't figure out who this guy is. When, you're, when you got distance, you've got to use more influence. You've got to figure out how in the world you can communicate to people in a way that allows him to hear. And so he was very bold in letter. But when you're present, you're dependent upon the Holy Spirit to empower your presence, not just your words. And so you don't need to be super powerful. You don't have to show people your stripes. What you do is you let the light that is on the inside begin to illuminate the environment. And you let Jesus be what he needs to be rather than you be what you need to be. In the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I come to you. If you want to be a good battler, you're going to have to humble yourself and not battle in your own strength. Paul used, first point here, restraint. He used restraint. When we talk about what it means to battle for our community, we're battling out there, not on the basis of our strength, but our weakness. When we go into the community, we realize the pain and the lack, and we don't just realize it by way of empathy and sympathy. We realize that was us. Gosh, I used to be that. And through our weakness of understanding where they are, because that's where we used to be, it gives us a, a certain degree of authority that is not seen by way of power, but by way of humility. And we can serve and allow people to understand what it looks like for us to do their bathrooms. Not just invite them to come to a meeting, but to go figure out the lowest thing on the planet that nobody wants to do it. The lowest thing. That would be our privilege to do, sir. Our privilege. I remember uh, maybe 20 years ago. I don't know. We were in our other building over here. I was shaking people's hands as they were walking out of service, which now is kind of prohibited. <laughs> and um, somebody came up to me, and, and they said, Pastor, the men's bathroom is clogged, and um, we need to fix it. Um, you, you, can, you can understand we were smaller then so for the most part everything went through me and I'm sitting there saying okay well who, who can I get to fix it and I saw one of my friends over here Daryl Green I said um, D um, the bathroom is clogged uh, there's a plunger over there in the closet can you please get it and go and clog it now you're, you're sitting there saying you mean you mean the Daryl Green the football player, Hall of Famer, 100 greatest, Daryl Green, you asked him to go. Yeah, and you know what he, he said? Glad to do it. Went in there. <laughs> got it unclogged. We don't come in our strength for service. We don't come saying who we are with our titles. When I walk out of here, I'm just bread. I'm, I'm just a guy. I'm a, I'm a kid that grew up in Kansas that should not be in the spot he's in. And 
All I want to do is be a servant to the community. That's the attitude we all need to have. That prepares us well to war right. If you don't have this humility, restraint of action, even though you've got the authority to do what you want to do, if you don't have this humility and restraint, when you approach the battle, you're going to approach it very differently. You're going to rely upon stuff that's not going to work. And you very well might be mad at the wrong entities. Wrong entities. He says here that I need to come in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And you think, because I'm writing this letter, that I'm coming relying upon my own flesh. That somehow my my fleshly accomplishments and strength are those upon which I'm going to now depend in order to change your mind. Now the entire passage here is speaking more about making sure that Paul begins to deal with the wrong ideas that are in church. The Corinthians were believing wrong. And he said, there are things that need to be addressed about your wrong believing. And the authority that I have is not that which is going to be used through my fleshly conduct. The authority I have is going to be used through the meekness and gentleness of Christ to take these thoughts and do with them that needs to be done with them. Because they are running rampant among you. And they are destroying the true theology of the simplicity and the sacrifice of Christ for your benefit. And so I've got to figure out a way to war against those thoughts, not against you. If you do not come with the meekness and gentleness and humility of Christ, you'll come in your own strength and be mad about the people who aren't thinking right. Be upset about those who might be talking bad about you. Begin to think they are the enemy rather than the things that are behind them. Oh, we had a prayer meeting yesterday. And we realized this. That there is a principality in power. Uh, let, let's say this. Prin- there are principalities and powers that seem to be influencing the entire world. But it is, it is that which is coming through human beings that is dictating what we ought to do and not do. And there is no way we need to begin to target the people. We need to begin to target the principalities and the powers. And serve the people well. People are only doing what they think is best and I'm happy for them. I love them, but we are warring against something very, very different. And this is why the church is the only institution on the planet that can claim the right to use all authority in heaven and on earth. Because God uses it to deal with the things behind the scenes so that the things in front that we see can change. And we care deeply for our community. We love our community. We'll die for our community. I was, we, we, um, we had a discipleship meeting yesterday. And I told some of the people who were in the room, I said, I don't think y'all know me very well. Um, I don't care much for my life. If I could give it for somebody else, great. But if I don't care much for my life, I'm kind of like maybe just in a very small, small way, kind of like Paul, who might not have cared much for those who were with him in their lives. Meaning Barnabas traveled with Paul. Silas traveled with Paul. 
If Paul got in jail, so did Barnabas. If Paul got beat, so did Silas. But there's something about our American Christianity that has almost jettisoned the joy of the cross. We've almost just kicked it out in order for us to be more comfortable in our world. When it was embraced in the first century, the disciples, when they were persecuted for preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 4, beaten with rods, came out of that moment not looking at one another thinking, oh my goodness, I'm in such pain. I don't know, maybe we can strategize differently and not do this this way. Maybe there's a way we can, you know, preach the gospel and, and not have to be seen as antagonists to the political and religious systems. Maybe they walked out saying this, whoo, can you believe it, guys? We were considered worthy of suffering for Jesus. What a joy. There is something about giving our lives to the community. It can't be done online. It can only be done in person. The incarnation is a real thing, but God could only help us by coming to us. And we believe there is infinitely more benefit that the church could give by being close than far. Paul was working hard to try to figure out how he could address the issues with the people in Corinth through meekness and gentleness and realize the only way I can get there is by coming in humility and battling in, certain, in such a way that allows for the things behind the scenes to be dealt with rather than the things in front. And when you, when you come like that, there's, let me, let, let me qualify this. Paul being an apostle was well acquainted with what it was like to deal with spiritual entities. Well acquainted. There are familial powers. There are powers that deal with things behind the scenes governmentally. There are congregational issues that happen and I, I don't want to get into the designation specifically um, to try to, 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 to outline every individual thing but it's important for us as a people to know how we are going to war well when it comes to, to battling because every day of our lives is a battle and generally speaking the circumstances that present themselves are presented by people and we cannot war against the people. Our job is to war against the stuff behind it. Now, most of the time, our warring, because we aren't where Paul is, our warring comes, <laughs> we need to address the us. We haven't gotten to the place where we are the, uh, the meek and the gentle. And so we ha there's too much of us. And we need to war with us. So that we can get to the place where we can be what Paul can be. So we can then deal with the things outside. And so if you're talking about battling in your family with things that you cannot see. It's not about whether your son or daughter needs to obey you better. 
It is, but that's not the complete thing. You're not going to see the victory you need to see simply by logic and sitting them down for a 45-minute conversation. You're going to have to pray and deal with the things behind the stuff and realize that the problem is usually you. I realize they're disobedient, but where'd they get it from? It came naturally. I know you want to blame Adam and Eve, but it's you. It's you. Every time my children didn't do right, and they are phenomenal. I love my kids. They, I, it, 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 listen, any parent would love to have the problems that Cynthia and I got. That's how great my kids are. But they did disobey. And every time I began to get into the mode of thinking, ah, I need to really get into it. Cynthia would let me know. Eh, slow down. Be careful. And I didn't realize that it was more of my flesh beginning to get into the battle than me really caring for them like the Spirit of God would. Coming in the meekness and gentleness of Christ to correct things. And there is never a time when we don't need to come in the meekness and gentleness of Christ to correct things. Never. Never. Moses did his best to try to fix stuff. And the people of Israel were disobeying again it was their pattern and I have some compassion on Moses I mean he was one of the greatest leaders God ever made up to that point the greatest leader and twice at least at least I I think it's like four or five times but at least twice while the children of Israel were in the wilderness God said I'm going to kill them so Moses had some sense of I'm, sometimes I, there may be a time I can agree with you about this. But every time God said, I'm going to deal with him, Moses got on his face and said, please don't. Please don't. God have mercy. God have mercy. God have mercy. And the Lord listened to Moses cry. I don't have time to go into how God changes his mind and that he doesn't need man's inspiration in order to do so and that he's completely sovereign and he knew what he was going to do before that happened and it was all a plan for Moses to develop the sensitivity on his insides so that he can be the shepherd he needed to be rather than the leader he was from Egypt and developing the kind of things that were spiritually motivated rather than just governmentally motivated. All those things were part of the process that allowed God to seem like he was changing his mind when he never does. But in the process, I think something developed in Moses whereby he said, I've been good enough to these people now. I stopped God from wiping them out a couple of times. So at the end of his ministry, the people were mad that they didn't have any water. This happened earlier in his ministry as they were coming out of Egypt and, and, and wandering in the wilderness. They didn't have any water. And they grumbled at Moses again. Now, they were wrong. I mean, you grumble at Moses, who 10 miracles in Egypt that let you out. You came out with all the resources from the people of, of Egypt. You just, you went to every house and asked, give me your stuff. They said, absolutely, it is our offering to give to you so that no bad happens to us anymore. And so these slaves, slaves who had nothing, came out wealthy. Then they came to the Red Sea. It parted. Like never before has that happened. Under Moses' leadership, they come through on dry ground, dry ground. They get on the other side, the sea opens, it closes up and, and destroys the Egyptians who were trying to follow them. Never more did they have to worry about being enslaved by Egypt. Moses had enough credibility just from that. But then nine times 
in the wilderness, God brought them to places of need, and they never, meaning the Israelites, cried out to him for, for help. They only got mad at Moses. This was the tenth. And Moses was sitting there thinking, okay, I've responded pretty well. But you know, I've had it with y'all. You all haven't thrown me a pastor's appreciation month. You haven't recognized my birthday. You've never said thank you. Been 40 years, 38, 38 years out here with you in the wilderness. And you have not given me my due. You stiff-necked, rebellious people. For the last 38, you've been out here doing wrong. And it's been my responsibility to try to get you right. I am so angry with you. As they were asking for water, God told them to speak to the rock. And water would come out. But Moses was so angry, he employed the same system that he employed in the beginning. When they came out of Egypt in order to get water from a rock, God then said, hit the rock. And this time God said, speak to the rock. Instead, Moses hit the rock. No water came out because he wasn't doing it the way God said. And he didn't have the attitude that God wanted. And so Moses hits it again. And then water comes out. He should have gotten the cue after it didn't come out the first time. Because never had there been a time when Moses tried to do something God said do and it didn't work. He should have said, what am I doing wrong here? God's never come through. He'd never not come through for me. What am I doing wrong here? And he didn't. God gave him an opportunity. He hit it again. And then water came out. And the Lord spoke to him and said, you know, I told you to speak to the rock. But you were so angry. You were so frustrated. That you didn't do what I said. And you, you, in anger, you struck this rock twice. Because of that, you don't get to go in, yet they get provided for. Whenever we come in our own strength, trying to add our effort to the moment rather than just using God's words speaking to the rock with his words, we find ourselves in a position where the people that we're, we're caring for, they might get what they need. Somehow or another, the Lord's going to help them. But you won't. You'll miss out on an inheritance because you did not war well. The bigger picture as I close was that God wanted to show Moses. In, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says there was a rock that followed the people throughout the wilderness, and that rock was Christ. The first time the water came out of the rock and Moses hit it, that represented the crucifixion of Christ. He was struck for our iniquities, and out of him flowed our life. The second time, he was just supposed to talk to him, meaning Jesus doesn't need to be struck twice. Just once. He only needs to go to the cross once. After that, we just talk to him for what we need. We just petition him with his words on the basis of that which flows from the cross to us. God was trying to produce a shadow, a foreshadow of what it would be like, and Moses blew it. And not only did God want to produce a foreshadow, he wanted to help Moses understand what it was like to provide for people with consistency and do not ever misrepresent me. You've done really well the entire time. One time, one time caused him not to enter into the promised land. One. 
And Moses thought it was so unrighteous, he begged God, like a, like a child going through the checkout aisle, trying to figure out why mama won't get him his Skittles. Begged God over and over and over and over and over to where? God had to tell Moses, stop speaking to me about this. Don't talk to me about this anymore. Moses never went in the promised land. When we do not come in the meekness and gentleness of Christ, we find ourselves in a position of not entering into the promises that God desires. Though the people very well might benefit from that which we are trying to project and, and present, we may not. I beg you, develop the humility necessary to be the representative of Christ so you can war well in your environment. Whether it be for your family, whether it be for your business, let the meekness and gentleness of Christ be that which goes before you, inspires you, and follows after you so that people talk about you when they, when they leave in a good way, not a bad. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Empower us as a people to be the kinds of folks that can serve you and our community well. If you're online watching and you don't know anything about who Jesus is, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. If you'll text New Life to 25827, somebody will contact you and help you understand what it means to start a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's not only the Savior who wants to make sure you don't have to suffer the consequences for your own misdeeds, but He's the Lord that wants to make your life better here. Relevant, more effective, fulfilling. If you want to serve that wonderful Jesus, text New Life to 25827 and somebody will contact you. Church, this week, be the church. Do what you need to do. Get out there in the community and be a, a salve to those that are wounded. Be salt in corrupt environments. Be light in the midst of darkness. I had the privilege yesterday of going around and driving to my community, praying for my homes. Start prayer walks. Drive prayers where you're just going through the community and believing God to heal you become the, 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 the shield against things. We know that the COVID-19 thing is a scary thing for most people. Not for me. I'm really excited about the possibility of being a help to those that need it. And as I leave the stage, there was a plague that broke out in number 16 against the people in Israel. And... Moses and Aaron saw it and people were suffering greatly. And Moses and Aaron had the idea of taking a censer. This had never been done before. Taking a censer. Putting incense in it. Lighting it. And having Aaron run throughout the community. Incense represented in the Old Testament prayer. It was that which would rise to God and be a, a sweet aroma to him. We're supposed to pray, and our prayers are supposed to be those which come from the fire on the inside of our soul. But Aaron didn't just stay in the church and pray. He didn't just stay at the tabernacle. He ran throughout the entire people. So yesterday morning, I got up early before our discipleship meeting. I drove 
throughout my neighborhood praying for homes using my incense of prayer believing God to stop the plague I beg you be an agent of healing be an agent of healing develop the faith necessary to do infinitely more good than the possibility of bad God be with you